Hi, this is Eugene, and I just wanted to say we're really grateful to be able to share this webinar with you. Uh, it was sponsored by the National Committee on North Korea, held today on May 28th, 2020. And the panelists included our very own Paul Lee, President of Divided Families USA, Chahi Lee Stanfield, who is a Korean-American Divided Family member and also Executive Director of National Coalition for the Divided Families, and Dr. Catherine H.S. Moon, who is a Professor of Asian Studies at Wellesley College. The webinar is unedited, but the one thing that I wanted to point out is before they break for Q&A, they show a video of Hyunjun Lee, who is a 92-year-old Korean-American Divided Family member who gives a message to President Donald Trump. And you obviously can't see subtitles on a podcast episode, so I just wanted to say that there's a link to the video in the description, so you can fast forward through that if you don't know Korean. And yeah, we'll also be sharing the video on Instagram and other social media. So uh, yeah, I got a lot out of the webinar. It gives a great synopsis of the U.S. and North Korea divided family situation in terms of geopolitics and the history. And I think that it just gives a lot of great insight into what's going on right now, currently, as of this recording. So um, I hope you enjoy it. And thanks for tuning in. Okay, I think we have critical mass, so we'll get started. Uh, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Esther Im, and I work at the National Committee on North Korea, the host of the program today. Um, for those of you unfamiliar with our organization, NCNK is an NGO based in Washington, D.C. that works to promote principled engagement between the United States and North Korea. In practice, this means working to protect spaces for engagement between the U.S. and North Korea, like humanitarian assistance, track to diplomacy, and other people-to-people -people engagement. Our overarching goal is to encourage greater understanding and cooperation between the United States and North Korea, who, as we know, have very difficult bilateral relations. We are also a membership-based organization of over 90 people with a wide range of experience and specialization on North Korea issues. For example, we have former U.S. government officials who've worked on U.S.-North Korean negotiations, and we have current American humanitarian workers with ongoing programs in North Korea. But our members are unified in their support for principled engagement as a means to improve U.S.-DPRK relations. Lastly, NCNK works hard to provide information to the public and policymakers on North Korea issues. We have a series of issue briefs available on our website, ncnk.org, that covers a wide range of topics. Just this month, we published a new brief that provides a broad overview of the USDPRK divided families issue. It covers the history, grassroots advocacy efforts to bring attention to this issue, and the challenges to family reunion. Which brings us to our discussion today. So often we hear about Korean divided family members in the context of North-South Korea relations, but we hear so little about Korean American families who have also been separated from their family in North Korea. As we approached the 70th anniversary of the start of the Korean War, we thought it was important to bring focus to the closing window for the reunion of these families. Here with us today is to, to discuss these issues is Paul Lee, uh, who is the author of our issue brief, Ms. Chahi Lee Stanfield, and Dr. Catherine Moon. You should have received their full bios, uh, so I'll try to keep the introduction short so we can get on to the discussion. Paul Lee is a program assistant for youth programs at the U.S. Institute of Additionally, he is the president of Divided Families USA, and he co-produces a podcast on Divided Families writ large. Ms. Chahi Lee Stanfield has been a tireless advocate for USDPRK Divided Families. Herself a Divided Family member, she founded the National Coalition on Divided Families in 2008, and she continues to serve as, as its executive director. And for many years, she worked with Senator, former Senator Mark Kirk of Illinois to help pass two bills related to divided family members. 
And finally, we have Dr. Catherine Moon. She is a former, she is a professor of political science and the Wasserman Chair of Asian Studies at Wellesley College. Additionally, she is a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, where she was the inaugural chair in Korean studies from 2014 to 2016. She is also on the advisory committee for our organization NCNK, and she coincidentally was my major advisor in college, so I'm very pleased to be able to turn the floor over to her. So Professor Moon, please take it away. Thank you so much, Esther. It is a genuine pleasure to participate in this forum together with Paul and Chahi. Um, and I'm very grateful to Esther, to Dan, to Keith Luce, um, and the staff of NCNK for hosting and organizing this event. Um, as many of you don't know, I would say, Divided Families is such a personal, very painful um, reality for millions of people in South Korea and probably about 100,000 or even more Korean Americans in the United States. And I say you don't know because this is not an issue that is raised publicly very much. Uh, it only recently became part of debates and discussions in smaller settings, as well as the House and the Senate writ large, um, very, very recently. And among the general public in the United States, if you say divided families, they'd say, yeah, every family is a divided family. No one gets along perfectly. But we know regarding Korea, people of Korean descent, that divided families mean something completely different. I happen to look up on Google divided families to see what I get, because I know we have divided families from Germany, from the East-West division, from Vietnam, from Cuba, various countries in the world. And I was really surprised to find that the Korean case is the case that comes up. In a way, divided families is synonymous with being ethnic Korean, um, especially generations that endured the war and the generations after who have received the family history. And I think today, when I look out at my screen, um, I see um, Ms. Chahi Stanfield, Mr. Paul Lee, and myself as representing three generations of people of Korean descent in the United States. Um, and yet, we all come together from very disparate parts of the country, very disparate backgrounds, different generations, to focus on this issue. And I ask myself, why? Um, you will learn why uh, in, in different ways from these speakers today. First, I'd like to start off with Paul, Paul Lee, who is the author of a really good, I would say, very comprehensive article um, on this issue. And I encourage everyone to go to the NCNK website and to read it. Um, Paul, if I may ask, could you give us a very brief overview of your, your two, three main points in the issue brief? And then the follow-up question to that question is, you're a young guy, recent college graduate, working at USIP. How did you come upon this issue? Why do you care about it? And why should the rest of us care about it? Thank you so much, Professor Moon, and to Esther and to NCNK for this opportunity. 
Uh, and thank you so much, uh, Chahi, uh, for, for being able to join us today. I think it's especially meaningful because uh, I, I think there aren't, it's very rare to have an opportunity to have a firsthand testimony uh, from a Korean American divided family member. So I'm really appreciative of that fact. Uh, I can start with a brief overview of the paper, as you mentioned, Professor Moon, because I think, as you mentioned, and as Esther mentioned, Many people are familiar with Korean divided families from the media headlines. You know, they see these tearful reunions of uh, the elderly grandmother waving goodbye to her son or to her spouse on a bus at Kungang Mountain. But, and there have been 21 inter-Korean family reunions and 44,000 uh, Korean families have been able to reunite uh, through those reunions. But I'm really grateful to NCNK uh, for the opportunity to shed light on an often overlooked issue, which is Korean American divided families, who since the outbreak of the Korean War, almost exactly 70 years ago, so June 25th, uh, 1950, the vast majority have not had the opportunity to, uh, of course, meet with their loved ones in North Korea, but even know what happened to them. So I'll quickly share, uh, I think, three takeaways that make Korean American divided families, I think, distinct from uh, you know, divided families in South Korea or North Korea. So the first one is the sheer difficulty of accounting for Korean American divided families. And as you mentioned, Professor Moon, and as, as even official congressional legislation point out, the most frequently used number to describe Korean American divided families is 100,000. Now that number, I think I have a lot of trouble dealing with that number because at this point it was derived from the 2000 census um, and you know from the number of Korean Americans at the time. Now if you look at the number of uh, divided families in South Korea, which the Ministry of Unification keeps very, very um, detailed statistics on divided family members, there are only about 53,000 uh, officially registered divided families left in South Korea out of 130,000 who registered. So we have reason to believe, as Chahi will talk about, from our private registry, that uh, there are much fewer than 100,000 uh, divided family members. And you know, because Korean Americans are such a small minority in the United States, unlike in South Korea, there is no official government mechanism, widespread mechanism to track and trace Korean American divided families. I would say the second biggest uh, difference between inter-Korean divided families or divided families in South Korea and Korean American divided families is the lack of an official mechanism. So whereas divided families in South Korea can officially apply, it's just, I, I looked at the form, anyone can look at the form on the Ministry of Unification, apply to enter the lottery, uh, either for face-to-face -face reunions, the last one was in uh, June 2018, I believe, and they have been put, all, put on hold since then. But American citizens are not able to apply for that lottery. And there's no official mechanism, especially because of um, a ban on uh, US passport holders traveling to North Korea. So that has caused, as I'm sure Chai can explain as well, Korean American divided families, vast majority of them are over the age of 70, 80, to resort to unofficial means through brokers in, in China, in, in Canada, 
and through liaising with the North Korean government, which is a very unreliable method. And I would say the last takeaway is just the sheer, that at the outlook, uh, there's a lot that can be done on this issue, but the outlook uh, isn't bright right now with time running out because of the unique challenges in the US-North Korea relationship. As I mentioned, besides the, the ban on US passports, there's a virtual standstill in, in top level US-North Korea negotiations, which make you know, the Red Cross, the State Department, even the South Korean government is very invested in supporting Korean American divided families. But because of the lack of willpower on the North Korean government, because of this standstill in top level negotiations, uh, this issue has been stuck despite grassroots support and despite congressional support. So those are quick takeaways from the paper. And like you said, Professor Moon, my personal interest, um, I was saying earlier how you hosted a, uh, a seminar while you were at uh, Brookings four years ago on this topic. And I remember thinking that was, uh, that was not long after my own grandfather, who was uh, um, a, a divided family member himself, passed away. And I think, you know, it's that personal connection that um, that inspires me to to keep working at this, even though um, and people like Chahi, who who inspires me to keep uh, shedding light on this issue. Thank you so much, Paul. Um, Chahi, you are the one who started this all in many ways in the United States. You are really the pioneer activist advocate um, for the immediate family members who are divided, um, as well as the activists bringing this issue into the political limelight, um, starting in your own state. Could you tell us briefly about your personal connection to this issue? Um, and how it was when you began versus now. What are the changes you see? What are the disappointments? Um, what were your expectations when you began the work in 2001, I believe? Um, if you could do a little bit of the comparing and contrasting then versus now, in addition to your personal uh, account, I'd be grateful. Okay, uh, the, the number 100,000 is a number, an estimated number I presented to then um, Congressman Mark Kirk in March 2000 and uh, to Secretary of State Colin Powell in September 2001. Uh, we, when we were studying, we had, I found no literature or documents uh, I could use. So we came, a group of divided family members and I came up with a number. I also mentioned that we, in 10 years, most of these people would pass away. We don't have hundreds of thousands. We don't even have thousands now. I have the statistics. Uh, if we are lucky, it would be hundreds. And uh, in April 2017, uh, I updated my 
list of 317, which I hadn't updated. I came up with 53 uh, registrations. The rest had been passed away or uh, phones were disconnected or their uh, family members asked me not to call them again. In um, November 2018, I did a nationwide publicity. I came up with 105. Five months later, in April 2019, I updated and I found out that 18 out of those 105 had passed away or went to the nursing home. <clears throat> the, uh, I filed 97 registrations at the State Department. 66 or 80% of uh, the, them are in their 80s. Uh, 16 out of them are in their 90s. So 85% uh, of 97 my registrations are in their 80s and 90s. It's not even updated yet. A month later, my big brother, one he Lee, passed away. In July, Lee Hanjun, who had left his uh, parents, brothers, sisters, and wife and son, passed away. We and I'm a 79-year-old cancer patient. We are at the very end of our lives. Time is running out. Uh, um, I was. Uh, born in a deep mountain village called the which was a Korean guerrilla hideout when Korea was under Japanese rule. My father had 120 people cultivating the agricultural land. And according to the history and my family, my father provided food and weapons to the Korean guerrillas. And the one of the fighters was my father's youngest brother. And the leader was uh, the future Prime Minister Kim Il-sung. My father, when the World War II over, my family decided to return home, which was in the southern part of South Korea. My mother, my three brothers, my two sisters, and I left for South Korea. But my father and uh, one of my brothers only stayed in Manchuria to wrap up the business. That was the last time we saw them. Right after we left, the border between China and North Korea was closed. So they became trapped in Manchuria. In 1949, uh, my father was uh, the commander of uh, a battalion who uh, won the battle of a shopping battle. The Chinese government uh, granted my father's wish to move to North Korea for uh, a word. So they moved to North Korea, in, but that was the year when the Korean War broke out, and Ungi was conscripted into the North Korean army and forced for North Korea, and my father, while my three other brothers fought for South Korea, and one of them was killed. When Unhi was returned home and uh, uh, when the war was over, this time the 38th parallel was drawn 
and my father and only became trapped in North Korea. At the age of 54, my father started running marathons. And later he was well known as an athlete, educator, and inspirational speaker. At the request of Kim Il the Prime Minister, um, Kim Il-sung, they made a movie about him, his life. Uh, in 2012, Jason An, uh, who was a medical student at Harvard University, and Eugene Chung were making a, a documentary film on the divided uh, families. And Jason obtained a copy of the movie from North Korea. But anyway, um, in 1992, my nephew, who was a Methodist church minister, went to North Korea with a group of uh, uh, ministers. And he mentioned uh, my father's name to the guide when he arrived in Pyongyang. The next day, when Sanya returned to the hotel, Ongi and uh, his son were waiting for us, my nephew. So from them, uh, we learned what had happened uh, after they moved to North Korea. Since then, Ungi um, wrote several letters to my brother, Wonhee, and twice to me. But the letters stopped 10 years ago. Uh, last year, in May, my big brother Wonhee passed away. And we don't know whether Ungi is still alive or not. Um, this is one of the millions of divided families stories. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you. Going back to Paul, I'm curious, Paul, if you could tell us, um, partly based on your issue brief, as well as the work you've been doing on this issue um, more broadly, what are some of the efforts that have been made to reunite families, to locate families, and especially in your article, you talk about um, public or governmental measures, as well as private sector um, measures. Can you tell us, um, are there successes? Um, or if not, what explains the lack of successes? What are some of the problems involved with private versus public measures? So as I mentioned, the majority of American citizens have not been able to see or find out what happened to their relatives in North Korea, but there is a small minority who have been able to, um, either one, liaise with uh, the North Korean government and North Korean, should I say, uh, front organizations in the United States. So there have been uh, cases where families uh, or individuals have uh, contacted the permanent mission of uh, North Korea to the United Nations in New York and uh, use that channel um, as well as uh, the KANCC, the Korean American National Coordinating Committee, uh, to um, trace and ultimately reunite with their families in North Korea. Uh, the, the other means is uh, of private brokers. So before uh, this travel ban, um, and especially in uh, the 2000s, there was uh, there were several. Uh, you know, especially after the the summit between uh, Kim Jong Il and Kim Dae Jung in 2000, 
there were uh, there was really a lot of excitement in the Korean American community because of the success that uh, divided families in South Korea were having. So a lot of them resorted to brokers, uh, ethnic Koreans um, in China, called Sunjok in in um, in Manchuria, where, where Chahi was born, uh, to connect with their families in North Korea. But the problem with that is that they had to pay upwards of ninety thousand, somewhat sometimes even more uh, upfront. And I think Charlie can speak more about that um, from their personal experience. Yeah, a cash upfront. And oftentimes they would go to North Korea after spending all this money uh, to discover that this relative was not even their real family member. So the success rate was not very reliable. And also the freedom to, uh, of what they could say, what they could do while they were in North Korea um, was was uh, had its restrictions as well. May I add one thing? Yes, please. In 1985, when South and North Korea were negotiating um, about the uh, divided families, we were the U.S. citizens were excluded. North Korea has always wanted to uh, deal with our issue through a face-to-face meeting with the U, uh, U.S. government. That's why uh, we have had no formal uh, channel to uh, uh, process our uh, reunion process. So that was the biggest problem. But again, the uh, <coughs> thanks to Congress, our hero, Mark Kirk, he had passed two bills, uh, one signed by President George Bush in, uh, on January 28, 2008. And the other was signed by President Obama on de- December 16, 2009. And uh, politically, our government has been great. Uh, the, the, our hero, Mark Kirk, Ambassador Robert King, Ambassador Joseph Yun, Ambassador Vegan, also people at the State Department, the congressmen and women, they have all tried hard to uh, open up the channel, I mean, officially. Uh, but the political situation has not been that great. Thank you very much. Um, I think what I'd like to do is open up to Q&A so that we can invite some questions and comments from our viewers. Uh, and then we will ask Paul and Shahi to um, take some of those questions in turn. Um, so those of you who are watching, feel free please to send in your questions um, and um, please tell us your name so that we know uh, which question belongs to which person. Um, and I will be um, taking questions and reading them aloud to our speakers. And then briefly before we break for Q&A, um, we'd like to show a short video um, of Mr. Hyunjun Lee. And just briefly, Chahi, can you, can you provide just a, a little bit of background for who this person is? Uh, he passed away in July last year. He registered, uh, he had, had left his uh, uh, parents, grandparents, 
brothers, sisters, wife, and uh, a son named Dokyeong. Uh, he had been on my list. Uh, he called me almost every month or every other weeks, and he, st he stopped calling. Then he started, when he started calling me, uh, in, he, he was uh, in the hospice case. So Paul uh, made the video. Uh, Paul interviewed him before he passed away. So uh, here is the, his, uh, this is the, Mr. Lee's uh, dying man's message to President Trump. Okay, thank you so much, Ahi. We'll share the video now. Trump 대통령의 저는 이현준입니다. 4월 22일 1927년생입니다. 제가 출생지는 평안북도 운산군 운산면 통현로이라고 군소재이에요. 제 이북의 부인은 1931년 1월 11일에 생일. 제 이름이 이덕영이에요. 큰 독자, 기력자. 내가 영어를 못해도 시대전입니다. 여기서 사는 지가 40년이 넘었습니다. 저희들을 도와주세요. 동물들도 살아가고 사는데 제가 벌써 이게 70년이 됩니다. 20세 청춘에 해는 보고 싶은 거에 눈물이 말랐어요. 부모 처자식을 버리고 와서 내가 무슨 복을 받았다고 이렇게 살아 있어요. 회개하라고 살아 있는 것 같은데 아저 하나님 아버지 수의성을 품을 도와주옵소서. 오늘 여기 미주 거주자들 빨리 도와주세요. 간절히 부탁합니다, 대통령. Thanks very much to those who um, made that clip, and um, thanks, Esther. Um, I, I just want to mention it's it's very difficult to watch, um, and but I want to mention even though Chahi and Paul um, are concerned about the declining numbers of divided family members who are still alive, in truth in the United States, we have more people who have left family members behind in North Korea than are showing up in these registries, um, as both Chahi and Paul know. Uh, there are many people of Korean descent in the United States who are still in a bit of denial or um, they are not at ease to admit that they have these ties, very personal 
um, familial ties to North Korea. Some people are afraid of their own relatives in the North. Should they be found? Maybe they want money. Maybe they want help. Um, others just simply live with the pain and don't want the pain of the division and the loss to be redisturbed by politics. Um, many Korean Americans don't even know their own heritage. And so if we were to do a very comprehensive survey of Korean Americans in the United States, I would guarantee you that we would find many more people who have a direct link um, to this uh, lived reality and political issue. Um, I will now go to the Q&A and offer you some questions from our viewers. Um, from Ambassador Robert King, um, he writes, thanks to Jaihee for her long-term commitment to bringing divided families together. And thanks to Paul for his excellent paper. Have you been able to work with the American Red Cross, which has had contacts with the North Korean Red Cross in the past? When I was special envoy, we tried to use the Red Cross link to help family reunions. Chahi, would you please take up this question? Yes, we have. Actually, <clears throat> uh, the reunion almost happened when, uh, thanks to uh, Senator Mark Kirk and uh, Ambassador King in 2011. Uh, Senator Kirk sent a letter to the Secretary of State. Uh, they did a uh, March 30, 2011, and uh, the Secretary of State contacted North Korea, and uh, they uh, re responded positively and invited Ambassador King to North Korea. So <clears throat> Ambassador King was in North Korea for five days in May, and uh, later uh, in August, the Secretary uh, invited uh, Kim Gyegan Jeribosa, and they decided to, in that time, the second time when they met, they decided to uh, make the reunion happen right away. So the American Red Cross then go over and then they wanted a, a pilot project. So we sent the 13 names. They came, it took a few months before North Korea came back uh, with the three names who could, of people who could participate. The American Red Cross wanted uh, the second uh, pilot project. We sent 10 people while we were waiting for, for the response. Uh, Prime uh, Chairman Kim Jong-il passed away. So we, yes, we did. Presently, the American Red Cross uh, is working with the South Korean Red Cross. They have contacted uh, the South Korean Red Cross and they are ready about the procedural matter. And they are ready to go process the reunion process, uh, matter right away if uh, they get green light from the government, US government. And also, <clears throat> we are, this is uh, where we are right now. If or when the reunion happens, the U.S. government will take us to Sokcho, which is a little harbor in South Korea. And the Korean government will take us uh, to the reunion place in Punggang Mountain and take care of all the uh, reunion process. 
and return us to Sokcho. And the Korean government will pay for all the expenses. Then our government will uh, bring us back to the United States. That's the way, that's how it's set up. I mean, what it is, I understand. And uh, the American Cross Call has been working closely with uh, all set to go. Paul, you have some comments as yeah, well? Yeah, thank you so much, Ambassador King. And I'm glad you brought up the Red Cross because, uh, yes, we have been in close contact with them and uh, the American Cross, Red Cross, especially the Reconnecting Family Links Project there, the staff there have been very helpful, but they are very hesitant and unable to really do, um, you know, substantively work on the issue. Uh, one, because of bandwidth, and, and resources on their end, but two, because of the broader US-North Korea um, relationship. And I think um, I'm especially grateful to Ambassador King as the, the first and I think only um, ambassador for uh, North Korean human rights issues, because there's been recently a lot of congressional support um, for this issue. Uh, there have been uh, two bills in particular, the Divided Families Reunification Act, HR 1771, and um, Representative Karen Bass's um, House Resolution 410, which both both passed the House in March. And the Divided Families Reunification Act directs the uh, special envoy on North Korean human rights issues, which has been vacant and, and, and still continues to be vacant. <laughs> but, but the point that I would uh, like to make, I, this when Ambassador King mentioned the Red Cross, it reminded me that the ultimate goal of what everybody is trying to do, right? I'm sure Professor Moon, you know, and, and everyone at NCNK knows that oftentimes when we think of North Korea, it's split into two camps, the, the human rights camp, which is very critical and tough on North Korea oftentimes, and, and then the engagement uh, camp or, or humanitarian camp. And these two camps often are at odds or don't really work together with each other. But with the, with the family reunions issue, the American Red Cross and International Committee of the Red Cross stress that in order to achieve closure, physical reunions, especially if they only last for two or three days, might not actually be the most effective. And I think I want to, uh, when we think about how to move forward and how to think creatively, especially in the midst of the pandemic, when meeting together in person, especially for these elderly people uh, is difficult enough. I personally think in the process of, of uh, writing the paper, working on this issue, that we should listen to what the divided families themselves want and what they think will bring them closure. And what I hear the most from the divided family members we talk to is that number one thing they want to do is know or ascertain the status of their relatives in North Korea. You know, whether they're dead or alive, what happened to them. So for me, I think that should be the number one priority and that is very feasible along with letters, video messages, recording stories. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I want to thank Ambassador King for working so hard for us. The situation was very difficult, but he tried and tried. And I want to thank him for that. We have a question from the um, viewers, the viewing audience, um, from Victor Xu. 
um, who asks um, about the role of the Korean American community in the United States and whether or not Korean Americans as a group, not just as individuals, but as a group, have tried to uh, contact the DPRK UN mission or to have um, a, a representative um, contact the DPRK UN mission in order to discuss these issues. Um, so could you both talk about the larger role of the Korean American community? What do you need from the Korean American community to keep this issue alive, to move this issue along? And is meeting with the DPRK UN mission something that has been um, discussed or tried? Um, perhaps, Chahi, would you like to start? Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> it took so long before the first generation uh, started working with the, uh, the mainstream of America because uh, we had we had had this uh, uh, cold war mentality, and we didn't want our government to know that we had our family members in North Korea. Another problem was that we had a language and cultural barrier. We didn't know where to start. And uh, so uh, it, it wasn't until 1990s, we were also, we were encouraged by what was going on in South Korea uh, uh, due to the, uh, the Sunshine Policy. But there was an, one problem you mentioned, the, the uh, KANCC, <clears throat> excuse me. The, uh, a lot of, uh, since it is, uh, uh, refugees, most of them, a lot of them uh, had uh, this, uh, kind of, uh, was not really comfortable <clears throat> to deal with uh, uh, North Korea directly. And uh, um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, also in 1990s, <clears throat> I'm sorry, they had the two, their two organizations of, uh, uh, working for North Korea. It was a Jewe-Dong-Po-Yan-Hape and Hewe-Dong-Po-Yan-Hape. And uh, uh, apparently people who dealt with them didn't have a very good uh, in results. Uh, also, <clears throat> they, had, they had a credibility problem dealing with, they had a credibility problem. So uh, some people actually went through, met, their uh, family members in North Korea through uh, KANCC. Um, still, we didn't have any political channel in 1990s, uh, which was the era when our parents uh, could uh, be in North Korea the last time. That was the last time period to find out whether our parents were still alive or if they were alive uh, they, uh, to meet the chance to meet them because of their ages. So in 1990s, the, the, since we didn't, not many people uh, were comfortable dealing with uh, we had no political channel. So the, the black market, when they boomed, uh, but a lot of people, uh, they took advantage of uh, uh, our desperation. 
So actually, the uh, our first generation tried uh, dealing with the K and and also black markets. And uh, uh, later on, we uh, had a starting, thanks to Congressman Kirk, we studied the process, our issue uh, through the uh, political, US political system. So we had a sensory project for one year uh, to pass the first bill. And the second, the Korean coalition I organized representing uh, Korean community leaders uh, from 12 states. And there was, uh, so we passed the second bill. And then <clears throat> our children, as um, the coalition members got old or passed away, our children, TFUSA, uh, uh, started working with the US government. Now we have uh, our young uh, young people, yeah, like a, you know, um, KPEC, uh, women crossing DMZ, missing pieces, um, uh, Korean, uh, the American friends, uh, um, committee service committee, and women okay, also CKA and uh, KAC. But the problem is the time. We don't have much time left. The time is running out. Okay, thank you. Um, Paul, would you like to add anything about your views regarding the role of Korean Americans in the US on this? Sure, and if I can just briefly add on to the, uh, the UN mission. So you know, some listeners might be thinking, and I thought this as well, you know, why can't there just be a civil society unofficial means? Why does it have to be a government mechanism? And I, I agree, it doesn't necessarily have to be government mechanism. But one reason that has deterred a lot of first generation Korean Americans from one, coming out and um, sharing their stories, identifying as Korean um, by the families, but two, uh, liaising with the North Korean government is uh, not just the shame of family separation and that trauma, but two, this Cold War era distrust of the North Korean government. That makes them very loath to engage with, uh, with North Korean front organizations. So, and if you know anything about Korean families, you know that there's a lot of drama and infighting. So you can imagine that there's the same with Korean American organizations. So, uh, you know, my observation is that the U.S. government-backed program, even if it's a small in scale, will garner a lot of interest and have the credibility and the scale uh, to to really support um, and gain the support of first-generation um, divided families. And I think this is kind of a perfect opportunity for public-private par uh, partnership or between the grassroots and the government because the the government the state department has been very supportive of this issue and has expressed um the, the state department has expressed um hope to uh come to an agreement with north korea specifically on the issue of u.s north korea family reunions uh the united states government has raised this issue with the north korean government on multiple occasions including at the hanoi summit um but they don't have necessarily the bandwidth to 
go and track all of the, the, the family members or um, like those on a grassroots level do. So, so far there is this gap between what uh, private organizations are doing, uh, which can also provide the funding and what the government is doing on a top level with messaging. And I think there can be a lot uh, done in the meantime uh, to try to bridge that gap. That's excellent. Thank you, Paul. Um, uh, we're short on time, but I'd like to get another uh, question in. And, and this issue, actually, this question, uh, several of our audience members are, are curious about the role of technology and um, virtual meetings. Given the um, age, the old age of the surviving divided family uh, members, the immediate members, um, and also the cost and now the pandemic um, that serves as a constraint on physical meeting, um, what role can technology play and could virtual meetings, um, virtual contact communication, um, could it be a little bit less political possibly? Is there a way to use that as a, as a means to a larger humanitarian, humane end? Paul, would you start? I think this makes me think about, uh, I mean, absolutely. I think more can and should be done in terms of video reunions and video messages. But again, my observation is that I think you know, it takes two to tango, two or more sides to tango and to make reunions happen, right? Both, both the US and North Korea have to be engaged. But I think time and time again, we've seen the North Korean government uh, pull out um, of a negotiation or possibility or treat divided family members as, as more or less bargaining chips. So I, I really think, and, and just logistically speaking, uh, I, I think from what I've read, and heard North Korea lacks the, the technology and the infrastructure to support a lot of these video reunion projects. And, you know, the, an example that comes to my mind is when, when the South Korean government offered to um, revamp and, and help uh, support the, the Kungang facilities, North Korea uh, said, you know, rejected that offer and said they would, they would tear, the, tear it down and, and try to build it up on their own. So I do think there's a lot of onus on on the North Korean government. Um, I, I want to briefly also touch upon the other Korean American divided family, which I believe aren't mentioned as much as the elderly divided families from the Korean War, which are North Korean refugees and North Korean defectors. And I think they should be brought up in the same conversation because they have not already. And I think if there's one thing we can do now is start recording the stories and, and messages and letters of all divided families, whether they are North Korean defectors, recent or from the Korean War, in the hope that you know one day, if or when North Korea opens up and uh, relatives in North Korea are able to see those messages, um, they're able to um, access them because I, I know that a lot of North Korean defectors continue to have contact with the relatives in North Korea and send remittances and, and um, are able to communicate with their family members there. So I think there's room for some collaboration uh, with the North Korean defector community. Thank you so much. In November 2018, the U.S. government, I, I, we believe that the U.S. government tried uh, with the tried uh, the video and uh, uh, telephone 
reunion and um, <clears throat> the UN lifted the ban on the equipment for South Korean government to send to North Korea, uh, preparing for that, but uh, it didn't uh, happen, but the ban was lifted. Yeah. Um, we are coming to the end of our hour, and I just want to um, convey this uh, message from one of our um, participants, our viewers, um, who writes, as a private citizen not of Korean descent, how can I and others like me support your mission? Should we reach out to our representatives and express our concern about this issue? My grandfather was a Korean War veteran and just passed away a few weeks ago. I can really empathize with your sense of urgency and feeling that time is running out. Um, I wanna thank our uh, viewer, uh, listener for that um, um, offer and comment. And I would urge um, you, at the, the person who wrote, to read Paul's article, The Issue Brief, on NCNK's website. Um, you can easily find Paul and uh, his organization and reach out and have a conversation with him as well as um, Chahi Stanfield. Um, and so that's one way that you can stay connected and try to figure out how to help. But um, before I turn this over to Esther and her closing remarks, I want to point out um, that Listening to these comments, um, these experiences, these perspectives from Paul and Chahi, it seems that at the very least, we need to be vigilant as Americans and as Korean Americans about correctly, accurately writing our history as Korean Americans in the United States and as Americans, that even though many of us have been steeped in Cold War mentalities of, um, fearing those in communist societies. And of course, the North Korea as a state continues to be an enemy of the United States. There is no disagreement from the war period. As human beings, no matter what is going on with the governments, as human beings, we are interconnected. We cannot deny that we have people of North Korean descent, Northern Korean descent, pre-division, in U.S. territory that we embody a certain spirit of Northern Korea, um, that we are not as separable as national boundaries might like us to believe, and vice versa. North Koreans need to understand at some point in the future that many Americans have these family ties to them as human beings. Um, and no matter what the politics is, this human personal family factor just simply cannot be denied or wished away. And so we need to write our histories accurately, correctly, comprehensively. Um, we also need perhaps the uh, private sector groups, NGOs, et cetera, as Paul alluded to. Maybe we as private citizens need to do our own surveys and find out who are the Koreans in America who have, uh, ethnic Koreans in America, who have these abiding ties by blood to 
members of long divided families in North Korea. There are more people of division than we know, than who have come out of the closet, so to speak. Um, and I think even for individual family histories, it would help to have that kind of candor um, and accuracy. And then the third point that seems evident is, why should we care? Why should we care as people? Why should we care as governments? And I guess this is a plea for governments in particular, for political leaders to understand that no matter how much they continue tough line, hard line, tough measures or postures that the human connections cannot be broken. And that even in memory, even in death, even transgenerationally, passed from one generation to another by those who have left us, this memory and the connection will live on and will inevitably live on longer than any leader can stay in office. So with that, I turn over our event to Esther. Thank you so much, Kathy, for those um, closing remarks. I um, feel compared to share that even my own family, uh, my father was born in Taiwan um, in 1945, so prior to the creation of the the North Korean state, and, and I think it's particularly heartbreaking to not be able to visit your hometown. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think we do need to remember our histories and write them down and um, just uh, encourage, encourage our governments to think beyond boundaries um, and realize that these are really human issues. Um, so thank you for that. And please, I'd like to thank Paul Lee for um, writing this wonderful issue brief for NCNK and getting this information out there um, and for participating in this conversation. And thank you so much, Chahili um, Stanfield, for your wonderful work and your tireless efforts um, really to push this issue forward. Honestly, I don't think we would be where we are on this issue without you. So thank you so much um, on behalf of everybody at NCNK. And please, and thank you to our participants who joined this afternoon. Um, we will have a recording of this event, so it will be available later, and we'll be sure to send out the information. And I'll be sure to send out um, the links to the video that we share, as well as the issue brief, and perhaps with Paul's permission, a link to his podcast on Divided Families. I think it's, it's really worth listening to. So thank you all again, and I hope that you enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening, and if you're interested in hearing more stories of family separation, please follow us on Instagram at Divided Families Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, and you can follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Thanks as always to Flannel Albert for the music, and see you next time.